Okay, today I'm in Cobham with Andrew Black, co-founder of Betfair. Probably the most important change in the betting industry, well, ever, I would imagine. Uh, thanks very much for agreeing to, uh, to talk to us. Pleasure. Um, just to start off, when you started Betfair in 2000, mm-hmm. um, looking back at it now and taking aside sort of your personal fortune that you gained from it, was it, in hindsight, was it a good or bad product to unleash into the UK gambling industry? I mean, I've always been very proud of it. Um, I think it's a very genuine, very legitimate piece of work. I think um, um, I think it, 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 it adds a lot to, to the landscape. I mean, you know, not everyone agreed with everything we were doing when we came out, but um, um, even, even our detractors acknowledged that it was a nice piece of work. And, um, you know, from my perspective, it was, and I believe still is, you know, a nice piece of work and something positive. And has it turned out as you envisaged it was going to at the start? Um, I think so. I mean, I was always very confident that it would succeed. Um, but, I'm, you know, that's just me. I'm probably just an optimist. Um, I don't really know. I mean, I, mean I, I sort of had a vision for the first few years. I thought it would, you know, what it would grow and what it would become. And it definitely fulfilled that. As the years have gone on, um, did I expect it would just completely dominate the market? Um, I don't know if I did or I didn't. I mean, I didn't, I'm not really sure that I looked that far down the line. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it's, it's got to where it's got to, you know, maybe it could be bigger, maybe it could be more influential than it is. Um, it's, it's certainly pretty big. Um, yeah, I, I guess it's probably there or thereabouts where I would expect it to be. Okay, if we go back a bit to your, um, to a bit of your history, uh, your, your dad was a property developer mm-hmm. and your granddad, Tory MP, Sir Cyril Black. Now he appears to have been quite a fearsome man with a lot of strong opinions on yeah. a lot of things, um, including negative view on gambling. What, what sort of a chap was he? Um, quite a scary man. I mean, I, I wasn't, I didn't see him that much. So, you know, I'd probably see him maybe, maybe twice a year, something like that. And I guess our relationship with him was, was a little bit formal um, compared to with my other grandparents. So he was a very serious, very serious person. Um, I was always a little bit kind of in awe of him, I guess. Um, I mean, when we'd see him at Christmas, you know, all his grandchildren would have to line up and he'd read our reports one by one and we'd each come forward and he'd give us some money depending on how good our reports were and that sort of thing. And I always had a bad report, so I always got less than anybody else. Um, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I did okay academically, but um, you know, I was often in trouble at school for one thing or another. Um, but, um, and, and, and he would humiliate you by picking out bits and pieces of your report that were sort of particularly embarrassing I mean, I can remember sort of standing there in front of all my cousins and him sort of reading out uh, this boy is bone idle and that sort of thing, you know, from my report. Um, and then giving me 10p when everyone else had had a pound and that sort of thing. So, so I guess, you know, he was a, he was a, a, a very religious man. He was, he was a hard liner. Um, and, you know, I, was, I guess I was a little bit scared of him in some respects. I mean, not 
scared in the way that you'd be scared of somebody who might beat you up, but just, just slightly in awe of him, I guess. But I had an enormous amount of respect for him um, all my life and um, all, certainly all the, all the time I, I, I knew him. Um, but he was, he, was, he was a hardliner, so he didn't like gambling, he didn't like anything to do with pornography, he didn't like um, um, alcohol. You know, he was he was a temperance campaigner. He was a very religious man. So so, and I'm and I'm not religious at all. I'm an atheist. So, um, you know, I mean, he had his views. I have mine. Was your was your father's opinion on gambling similar to his? No, my my father was unlike my grandfather. He was he was the softest, kindest person you could meet anywhere. He was a very clever man. He was um, he was the sort of person who would you know reel off the Times crossword in. Um, you know, matter of minutes. Um, he he could do mathematical puzzles in his head. Um, you know, incredible incredible speed. Um, um, he was probably the most intelligent person I've I've ever met in my life. But he was a very quiet, very thoughtful, very kindly person. So your interest in gambling wasn't a sort of teenage rebellion. So where did it come from? Um, <coughs> well. So Cyril was my father's father. My mother's family, on the other hand, um, they were working class people. Um, my uncle, my uncle Terry, he was uh, a plumber um, and he was always in the bookies and he always talked about the horses. Um, my grandmother, um, she used to do, um, she would do the pool, she would do the national lottery, she would absolutely anything, all, all small stuff, she would bet in the bookies. They were people who were very much um, gamblers, um, I guess, in a sort of smallish way, but I guess kind of the old-fashioned gamblers. You were kind of, you know, betting shop type people. So, you know, maybe I got it from them. So you, you did well at maths at school, and then you went to Exeter University, but you dropped out. I yeah. Mean, that, that, you know, dropping out was a bit drastic. What was your, what was behind that? Um... I don't know. I, I, I think uh, maybe I just wasn't ready for it. Um, I didn't do any work at university. I mean, I, I, I went, you know, I legitimately got into university and, and maybe I was kind of growing up at the time. Um, I went to the first maths lecture of the year and I didn't go again. Um, I don't know why I didn't go again. I just, you know, I just wasn't minded to do it for some reason. And, you know, when it came to the end of the year, I failed my exams, which was no surprise since I'd only been to one lecture. Um, you know, I did go to some of my other lectures. Um, but um, I, 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 I couldn't honestly tell you, but I spent a lot of time in the bookies when I was at university. Um, I spent a lot of time drinking and in pubs and um, just having a good time, but I didn't spend an awful lot of time working. No, I did read somewhere that you were actually making it pay in the bookies. Is that, is that true in those I days? I wouldn't say I was then. Um, I definitely had a few years of my life when I was making probably more money in the bookies than I was working. I would say that definitely wasn't when I was at university. I mean, you know, I did, I did okay, I think. But um, I, think, I think there was probably about, you know, a three-year period when I made quite a lot of money in the bookies and was, you know, almost to the point where I was finding it quite difficult to get my bets on. So what was your angle and edge? Um, probably say research, really. I mean, I don't think, I don't think there are any, well, for me anyway, no real silver bullets, you know, no real shortcuts. Um, I mean, 
you know, what I used to do is I used to, I'd work in the morning until about 12 o'clock. Then I'd take my lunch and I'd head down to the betting shop and I would just sit there reading through the form probably for about 50 minutes because I had an hour for lunch. And then I'd place my bets really quickly and get back to work and then you know, go back to the bookies after work and see how they got on. So, I, you know, you didn't have mobile phone in those days and, you know, I didn't, there was no access to, to what was happening. There was no internet. Um, so, um, you know, I was just coming and going. And um, I did make a lot of money around then. Maybe it was easier to do it. I think there were probably more ricks. I think there were more sort of mispriced horses back then. And it was pretty much exclusively on, on horses, at least to start with. Um, but um, I'd probably find one or two horses a day to back. I would probably look very hard for those. I'd be very selective. Um, you know, I wasn't someone who would just spend all day in the bookie having a bet on, any, on every race. I mean, I did from time to time, you know, just out of boredom. But mostly when I was doing it more seriously, I would be very, very selective. Um, just, 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 you know, try and find something that was value that was being overlooked by the market that was mispriced. So with your, your math skills coming into play, you're able to price up a race accurately and then spot the ricks that way? I wouldn't have said so at that time. I mean, I probably could have done, but um, um, I, I was just looking for value. So I'm not trying to price up the whole race. I'm just, um, you know, I'm scouring the card for something somewhere that's been overlooked. Um, and, you know, find some random, you know, 10 to 1 shot that, sh that I think should be a, you know, 4 to 1 shot or something like that. Um, you know, find trainers who are not sufficiently respected or who might be coming into form or, you know, for, for, for certain reasons or, you know, who I think have certain habits and, um, you know, or certain horses that, that perhaps needed a little bit of time to mature. I mean, there's all, all sorts of lines that I'm looking for, um, generally based around sort of timing um, and, you know, and just being very, very selective. You know, you're, um, you sort of describe a fairly carefree life at university do what students do enjoying yourself yeah. and then you took out two years to look after your brother yeah. who was uh who was very poorly very ill um yeah. that must have had a big effect on you yeah no, on the did. way you look out on things it did i mean it's difficult to look back on those times i mean um um he was you know younger than me he was struck down with a um a brain infection that almost no one would ever have. It's it's such a rare situation. Um, he got he got bacterial brain infection of his brain stem, and um, um, his brain basically sort of swelled up and crushed itself within his skull, and left him as a quadriplegic, so he couldn't move beneath his neck, and he had to be on a ventilator because he couldn't breathe or talk or anything. But his but he was still kind of you know awake, and his eyes moved and his mouth moved, but that was all he could do. Um, so it was a desperate situation awful situation that no one you wouldn't want your worst enemy to find themselves in that situation and, and I guess that interrupted my life in quite a big way I'm not saying I was going anywhere fast at the time but um, um, I, I you know I basically just gave up work spent you know that time with him um, and you know and then his situation worsened and he died and then you know and I just uh, you know I, I guess I just uh, probably got out a little bit. I travelled the world a little bit. Um, the whole situation was very difficult for me. He was my only brother and I was very close to him. So it sort of, you know, it messed with my life quite a lot. And I guess maybe I would have had a different career had that, that not happened. 
um, my whole life would probably have panned out differently. Maybe I'd have been, you know, gone down some more sort of traditional path. But um, anyway, after that, you know, it sort of just put me on a slightly different path. And I lost a lot of time. Um, so after spending two years uh, looking after your brother Kevin, you got a job in the city. Yeah, so so um, I worked in the city for a while. So I, my first job was with a company who provided software to city traders, um, to dealers and analysts and so on. And, so, and um, it was it was, as I say, well before the internet. But it was it was that sort of thing, you know. So so we were providing um, um, sort of analysis of things like traded options, other other derivative type products. So you know, difficult mathematical stuff. And I was, you know, I became the sort of head of, of, of support. So it was my job to travel around the city, going to see different people who were doing different things and helping them to get value out of our software. And that meant that, um, you know, I would be going from desk to desk to different banks in the city and everybody was doing something different. Um, and it was, it was a really difficult job because, you know, I'd have to get my head around what each individual trader was doing um, and what they wanted, and then I worked with them to produce um, um, sort of programs that helped them to do their job. So I had to understand um, the whole um, the whole area that we were operating in, which was very very broad. Um, so although my job was difficult, um, it was I would say pretty special in the sense that it really brought me on. Um, you know, each day would be another challenge. Each day I'd have to be working with a different person doing something different. And so for four years, I just spent going back and forth to different people in different banks, helping them to make money in the, 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 the ways in which they made money. Um, but, it, but all the while learning more and more about how the city worked. And was that learning on the job? I think I'm straight from university. T t totally. Now, I, there was a gap. So I, the, you know, I, my, I had the situation with my brother and then I worked in various kind of like manual labor type jobs, you know, places like B&Q and building sites and all that sort of thing for quite a long time. It wasn't until I was 26 that I had my first serious job, or maybe I was 25, 26, I can't remember. But so that was the first proper job I ever had. So I hadn't wasted a lot of time um, and I was a long way behind the curve. So I had friends of mine who'd been sort of five years working, you know, for sort of, you know, accountants, firms and banks and earning, you know, five times as much as me. Um, so I, I had an awful lot of catch-up to do and I was realistically never going to catch them up because it's hard to make up those, those sorts of times. But I, I did learn very, very fast um, and it was, you know, it was a good time for me in that sense. And were you still betting seriously in this, at this point? Yes, yeah, so the reason I left that job was because... Um, so what actually happened was um, I was making a lot of money in the bookies anyway and then... I put on a, one time I went down um, to the, uh, I was going to go down the bookies and I'm chatting to a friend of mine on the phone and um, um, we were talking about um, uh, the Grand National and the, um, uh, the Lincoln, so the spring double. So there was a particular strategy that we were looking at and a particular horse that fitted that strategy. So, so um, essentially I think we, we were looking at horses that were gelded after their th three-year-old year and then coming back as four-year-olds and how they potentially did in their first in their first run back from that 
and we thought that was an interesting line to follow, you know, for certain types of horses. And there was a horse in the Lincoln that was 40 to 1, and he was called Hilo. And um, um, he fitted that um, strategy, so he, he was uh, trained by, by William Haggis. And um, um, he was in the Lincoln at 40 to 1, I thought that was a, a rig. I'm chatting to this friend of mine, and, and we, I wanted to back party politics for the national anyway. So I went down the bookies and um, um, put on a, I had a hundred pounds in my pocket and I lost 70 pounds on a national hunt flat race. And then I put the last 20 on um, um, this spring double. Yeah, so it was, it was 40 to one and 25 to one. So it was a thousand to one and there was a bonus for getting the spring double, a 20% bonus or something like that. So I put that bet on and, you know, stupidly having, you know, I could have put a 50 pound bet on. I didn't even do it each way. I just did a, a straight win double. Um, but that came in, so that that was a uh, th that was twenty five and a half thousand pounds uh, for that, and with that I uh, bought a share in um, a horse with with John Hills, trainer, and um, he turned out to be a very nice horse. And about three months after that, so. Um, we had, so we spoke to John on the Sunday and he had three horses running on the Monday and they were decent prices. They were like, I think they were 17 to two, 15 to two and no, 13 to two, 15 to two and seven to two or something. And he said he thought they would all win. And so I put a series of Trixies on and singles and what have you all around the various bookmakers, which I frequented at the time. And uh, those three horses came in. So I picked up 30,000 for that. And at the time I was, uh, you know, I was still in my 20s. And this was a long time ago, right? So, you know, I picked up about, um, you know, 50 grand um, in, in a very short time period. And that was way more than I earned each year. So my salary was probably about somewhere between 25 and 30. You know, this is quite a long time ago, right? And I was doing okay anyway. So suddenly I had, you know, a lot of money in the bank and I wasn't earning very much at work and it just, I just didn't want to work anymore. I thought I'm going to make more money betting. So because I gave you, up. you actually went full-time professional gambler for a bit. Well, I did and I didn't because at the same time I was playing semi-professional bridge. So um, I've always been a card player um, and I play a whole lot, all the different card games, but for whatever reason I ended up playing bridge. Um, you know, how and why, I don't know. But that, that, that was the game that most appealed to me. You know, I played poker and, you know, very whist drives and all, all other forms of games, but ended up playing bridge. And there's a bridge club in London where you can play for pretty high stakes and you're winning or losing about, you know, a thousand pounds a day or, or higher if you want to. Um, and I'd started going down there and I'd been there sort of 10 or 11 times and I was making consistent money down there. Um, so, you know, combination of playing bridge for money, which is obviously gambling and betting, um, um, just, just backing horses mostly. So for about a year I did, I did that, a combination of those two. Um, so yes, gambling, but, but, but probably my more dependable income was coming from the bridge table. Okay, so where did um, programming come in? When did you learn that talent? Uh, well, um, I learned a little bit at university. I mean, obviously I did get thrown out, but prior to getting thrown out, I did do okay on the computing module. 
so I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to any of my maths lectures, but um, I did pass computing and I passed statistics and probability, which, which, which is probably my main interest. So I am actually a pretty reasonable mathematician, even though I didn't go to any of my lectures. Um, um, so um, I, w I always had a little bit of computing skill. And then, and then when I was talking about my job in the city, a lot of that was building spreadsheets for people. So, um, you know, it's not real, not hardcore code, but you're kind of tinkering around with Visual Basic there and, you know, there's a little bit of coding there. And then having, so, but then after my year of betting and gambling and bridge playing, I then um, decided I had to go back to work. And the reason, I guess, probably the most significant reason was the fact that um, I was going out with a girl who is now my wife, and I think she probably would have left me if I had carried on living the life that I was leading. So, you know, I, I, I don't regret for a moment my, my, my year living as a professional gambler. In fact, it was a wonderful year of my life. But I couldn't live that for my whole life, you know. And I, I know a lot of people do spend their whole lives as professional gamblers. And, but for me, I guess, I, I guess I wanted there to be some sort of a product. So the idea that I start the day and I've got a certain amount of money in my pocket because it was all cash back then, and then I finish the day and there's, you know, if I've had a good day, there's more, and if I haven't, there's less. But that's, that's all there ever is. It's, it's, just, it's just an accrual or, you know, of, of cash. I mean, I used to have cash all around my flat in different places. I used to hide it away when I had a big win, you know, forget about it sometimes. Um, um, but, you know, li living, living this strange life all around cash you know, I just, it just didn't sort of work for me. It didn't feel like I was building a proper future. And then you're thinking about getting married and, you, you know, you want to have kids and all that sort of thing. Well, it just didn't seem to work. So I thought I've got to be a bit more responsible. So that was, so that caused me to retrain um, as a computer scientist, really. Okay, so that was back in the city or? Not really. I never went back to the city. So, so after my job, um, the company track data where the, where I was um, providing um, data to analysts. I did spend a year working for a hedge fund. I'm struggling to remember when that was. That was somewhere somewhere in there. Um, but um, and that was kind of city-ish. And I guess the good thing about the hedge fund was that it. I think that was actually after my year of gambling. I think I spent a year at a hedge fund then. Might be getting it wrong. But basically, they were investing in all of the tech startups. So um, I would go, so if Yahoo came to town or eBay came to London on a, doing a roadshow, I would go and sit in on that. Um, so um, I was getting to see all these, you know, American tech businesses coming to the UK and in that year I guess I understood I just naturally got to understand an awful lot more about what was coming and what was working and what wasn't working so and I also got to understand how exchanges work and that's kind of important the nature of um, how a, you know the types of different types of stock exchanges around the world so in the UK typically you have market maker exchanges and you're buying off a market maker but in the US you put money you put shares up there on the board and people take them off just as in Betfair you put 
money up there at a price and people take that price. So the nature of that type of exchange, um, you know, so I sort of learnt more about that in my year at the hedge fund. Um, and then after that I went programming for all sorts of random people. So where did Ed Ray come into the story? Well, um, after, so having taught myself to program in certain languages and just sharpened my skills up a little bit um, um, around, you know, rel relatively simple languages and, you know, getting into databases and, and you know, more than the spreadsheets, which I was before, um, I worked at various places, including GCHQ. So, uh, Is that still top secret, what you did there? I did... I don't think I did much there that was really interesting. Um, I mean, it, most, most of what I did was working on their accounting system, so it was actually quite boring. Um, um, I think I did some interesting stuff for the MOD afterwards. So having worked at GCHQ, I carried on working for the Ministry of Defence on a programme that analysed all, um, all of their resources, their worldwide resources. And I know that programme was sold to the Pentagon after I left, and I did most of the work on that. And it was very rare that they managed to sell anything to the Pentagon. So, so that was a good piece of work. I was very proud of that. Um, but um, I, I, you know, a lot of that kind of defence type work, I, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be allowed to discuss it. Um, so I'd rather not say anything there. Um, but anyway, anyway, while I was at GCHQ, um, I had the ideas for Betfair. Um, so I think I was looking for an idea, and I'd had some really bad ideas. Um, I can't even remember what those bad ideas were, but then one day I just sort of pictured in my head, instead of three to one from a bookmaker, I pictured sort of 3.2, 3.3 sort of thing, a, a bid and an offer spread and how it would work and how the money could come up and come off it and so on and so forth. And I thought that was a really amazing idea. And normally when, you have an I when I had an idea, I'd go to bed and then I'd wake up in the morning and say, oh my God, what was I thinking yesterday? What a ridiculous idea, you know, I must have been, what was I smoking or, you know, whatever. But on this occasion, I woke up in the next morning and I thought, wow, that actually is, that actually could happen. That does make sense. And then you're just thinking and thinking and thinking and fleshing it all out in your head. Um, so, Betfair. Well, so, so, so having had the original idea, it was then, um, I guess it sort of fermented in my mind for quite a long time so I had a, lo a long time to think about it and I was very busy and I was making quite good money then because there was a lot of demand for anybody who wanted a website so I was building all these little websites for all sorts of random people by then um, you know they were fairly straightforward and it was quite quick to put them together um, so I had I had quite marketable skills and I was juggling you know probably two or three different contracts at the same time um, um, so I was pretty flat to the boards and I decided that I needed to take some time out to work on Betfair. So I, so I basically found a sort of suitable point, closed off all of my work, and I took about three weeks out and literally just locked myself in a room um, trying to force myself to build the first version of Betfair because I just wanted to prove to myself that it could work. And I wanted to understand the, the, the sort of database schema that would sit behind it and, you know, sort of any issues that might come up on the page and so on and so forth. So it was a very simple version not for the internet that I built, but uh, anyway, I built it, I liked it, I was happy with it. Um, and then I sort of tucked it away while I went back to work because, you know, it's just pleasant. It's just nice to be earning good money, you know, probably for the first time in my life. 
Um, so, so it was kind of on the back burner. And then um, I was invited to a summer party by um, a friend of mine, Jeremy, um, Jeremy Ray. Um, and while I was at the party, um, I got chatting to his brother, Ed. And Ed had particular views about how the internet was going to pan out. He was working for JP Morgan at the time. And um, I disagreed with him. On, I said, no, I think it's all going to be different. I said, in years to come, there won't, you know, you will have different types of betting on the internet. It won't be, you know, a bookmaker offering you a price. It will be a, a bid and an offer spread, and people will come up there and, you know, be proper person-to-person -person stuff. And that's how that's how I see it evolving. So I explained my vision to him. I didn't, th I didn't think much more of it at the time. He's probably the only person I spoke to about it because I didn't speak to many people about it. But um, um, anyway, I, I, I told him what I thought. He sort of, you know, nodded sagely, and, and, and that was that. And then I didn't see or hear from him again for a very long time, probably about nine months. And by the nine months later, I'd got to the point where I was just about to press the button on building it. So I tried to, I tried to find a partner and I'd sort of spoken to a few people and I just gave up. I just thought, I'm just going to do this myself. So I'd lined up a developer in Manchester. I was living in London, um, but they were cheaper up there. I, I, I got my specs sorted. Um, I'm literally about to press the button on the development when I get a phone call from Ed, completely out of the blue. And he said, oh, I've left JP Morgan. I'm looking to do a, an internet business. I've heard you're doing some, you know, doing that thing that you spoke to me about. And I was like, yeah, totally. And he said, you're looking for a partner? And I was like, well, yeah, definitely. So he came around to see me and um, um, we agreed to do it together and, um, you know, shook hands on that. And, and that was that and, and decided not to proceed with the development in Manchester, decided to take a little bit more time over it. Um, I guess he had a different perspective to me. So I guess my perspective was the sort of, you know, maybe the naive perspective of a developer, whereas his perspective was somebody coming from more of a uh, management consultant sort of background. I mean, he was a banker. He was working for a bank at the time, but that was more his background. So he was more sort of seeing it in a more professional fashion, you know, come up with an enormous, great big detailed business plan with all sorts of financial forecasts, um, you know, and then go and raise money from venture capitalists. And I was just like, just build the thing and just, you know, just put it out there and see what happens. So, so, so his, he had a more organized, professional view of everything. And we went down the road he wanted to go down. So you, you raised the money, you, you started Betfair. Um, and at the same time, Flutter. So somebody had the same sort of idea as you yeah. around the same time. How did you feel about that when you realized? It wasn't just Flutter. So while, so we decided to build Betfair and, um, the whole thing took about, from when we, having raised the money and put the business plan together, the build of the site took about six months, maybe less, maybe about five months actually. But um, um, during that time, we became aware that there were other people doing what we thought was the same thing. And Ed was very anxious about all of this because once we found out that Flutter existed, that they were out there and that they had raised a lot more money than we had raised to do apparently the same thing as us. 
And Ed was like, oh my God, you know, these guys are doing exactly the same thing of us. They've literally got 20 times as much money as us. We're dead. And I was like completely relaxed about it. I probably shouldn't have been, but I was. And I was like, there's no way they're doing the same thing as us. It's taken me a long time to come up with these ideas and I was very well positioned to come up with them in the first place. There's no way they're going to launch with the same product as us. It's going to be different and we're going to be better. So I probably should have been terrified at the thought of them, but I wasn't. I was an optimist and I tend to just have my head down and just push on anyway. That's my nature. So, so what you were much better at was marketing. I wouldn't say we're better at marketing. I mean, Betfair was different. So when we launched, Flutter launched about the same time and so did company called BetSwap and another one called BetMart. And BetMart, BetSwap and Flutter all look like eBay. So if you went to Flutter to have a bet, you'd, you, you would put up a £50 bet and someone had to come and take it. But they, they couldn't take part of it. So if you wanted, so you might break it down into 10 different £5 bets and they'd have to take each one of those. Um, if you wanted to, if you wanted to lay, say, 10 horses in the same race and you lay them each to lose a thousand pounds well you wouldn't a you wouldn't be able to do it but let's say you lay them each to lose a hundred pounds you'd have to have a thousand pounds in your account because it says you could lose a hundred pounds there a hundred pounds there it you didn't realize that they were all related events so so there was a lot of mass that should have been in there that wasn't and and the fact that you and and, and then if, if 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 somebody put in a better even money you could go to the front of the queue by going 1,001 to 1,000. And then they'd go jump over you by going 1,002 to 1,001. So you had all these tiny little games of leapfrog where people were just jumping to the front of the queue all the time. So, you know, we had, you, you could take any amount of money you liked. If someone puts 1,000 pounds up, you can take 27 pounds of that. If you want to go past somebody, you know, if you're, if you're in there at a price of three, you, they've got to go to 3.1. They can't go to sort of 3.001. They can't do these tiny little increments. So there was structure to Betfair. And Flutter was just like, each bet is like um, an item on eBay. And you have to take the whole thing and pay the price and so on and so forth. And you couldn't put offers up. You didn't have, so, so you didn't have a bid offer spread. So it was, it, was, it was like we were a sort of more mature version of what Flutter was. And we won, we won the battle in the chat rooms, in the forums. So you'd have these people saying, hey, have you seen this new thing called Flutter? It's really cool. And, the, uh, and somebody else would come, are you serious? You know, go to Betfair. That's just like way years ahead of these guys, you know. And so Flutter were losing the battle in social media. So you, but one of the marketing things that people remember, especially the bookmakers, was the, the death to bookmakers. Uh... Yeah, it's a bit of a wind up, yeah. <laughs> but you had racecourse bookmaker Maury Peter involved. So how do you feel about no, that? No, no, that's not true. He wasn't involved. That's just something that... that um, so our Wikipedia says Murray Peter was involved. I, I don't even know who he... I remember, I remember him on course. I remember his board on course. Yeah, but I don't think he was involved. Um, I know it says, it says he was, but I don't think he was. That's, that's just... That, I, I don't think that's, that's, that's true, because I'm not even sure I know him. OK, so going on to... So Betfair's existing. You've absorbed Flutter in 2001, so you've seen off the, the, the serious opposition... Yeah, um, you've done your own gambling models and stuff when you were punting. Did you sort of did you ever simulate which way it would go, as in the future, as it sort of turned out? I mean, did you did you assume that forevermore you'd be taking five percent of every transaction 
until each punter lost their money and had to replenish the funds. Well, we started the off charging model? a flat 5% of every bet. Now, that wasn't my decision. So you've got to think, the, the, there were kind of different factions in the company. So I was the developer. So I, I ran the development team. You know, to a large extent, I ran the product team. But, but you know, we'd have arguments about that. I was heavily involved in the marketing. But then separately to me, Ed sort of ran all the financial stuff. And with his team, and the PR stuff, and with his team, they sort of made decisions around how much we would charge. I mean, I had my view on how much we would charge, but, but, but they went away and did lo loads and loads of maths and came back and said, we've got to charge this, otherwise we'll never make money. So they started off saying we'll charge um, 5% per bet. Take 5% of every bet, otherwise we'll never make money. And I didn't believe that. I, I said, that's nonsense. You can't, you can't believe we'll never make money. This is the internet. You, know, you don't know how big this can get. You know, we could easily make money at 2%. So, so, so I didn't agree with them, but that was, that was their decision. Um, um, so we started off with that. And then, and then as things are moving forward, you know, before we got to profitability, we're like, well, we probably need to be charging a bit less. Um, so I said, well, I w would quite like us to go 5% per market so that, you, so that you offset all your bets. Um, you know, whether that was a good or bad decision, I don't know, because some markets you can play for like months and other markets are over in minutes. But that's, ha that's how we went down so we then so we then went five percent per market so if you, you you have offsetting bets in a horse race you win some you lose some you look at the PL at the end and we take five percent of that and then the step after that was to go on to a sliding scale so you you have you know the more money you spend the lower your percentage rate and it went from five down to two and we're charging on your profit and we always did so we always charge on on any profit you make as opposed to the size of the bet that you placed because that wouldn't work if you're betting in really low odds. And that was, yeah, so, so that was kind of an evolution that changed. So quite quickly, um, uh, we, we, we went from 5% down to much, much lower numbers. Andrew, I, I mean, at the time, Betfair sort of became widely known. I, I was working on race courses, so I, from the, my perspective, initially the bookmakers weren't interested at all in Betfair. Why do we care what price it is on the internet? That sort yeah. of thing. Um, but people, lively people, did start to find edges using Betfair and they started to make serious money. Yeah. The uh, original ones were the guys that realised that you could, you could lay a horse or back a horse shorter on Betfair and Arb with the racecourse bookies. And originally the racecourse bookies would call them in. Yeah. Uh, but that soon stopped because they the ones they backed at bigger prices were quite often the ones that won because yeah. your market was a more accurate market. Um, and when did the in-running, when did the in-running start? Fairly early. Um, on, on races, probably a bit later. Um, I mean, we had a guy called Mark Davis working for us who was um, head, of, um, head of our PR, communication and he came to me and he said that um, the future was in betting in running and he want, wanted us to have an in running product and could I have a think about that 
And so um, there were different ways we could have addressed it. But the way I chose to address it was to introduce a time delay between the person who is laying the bet and the person who is taking the bet. So the person who's laying the bet has always got a little bit of extra time to take the bet away. And the reason for that is that there's a delay on the TV pictures. Otherwise, you can find that somebody's watching TV three seconds behind and somebody at the race course takes it before you know, something happens, like a goal goes in in a football match. And somebody takes that bet knowing the goal's gone in and the guy didn't see it happen and he gets stitched up. So we would put in um, a time delay, the equivalent of the delay on the TV to sort of equalize everything. And once I'd done that, decided to do that and implemented that, then it felt like it was safe. Um, you know, also some people had the slow connection and so on and so forth. It felt like the whole thing was a bit safer to allow in running playing. Um, um, and that worked quite well, really well. But we started out doing things like football um, and tennis. And then it wasn't until later that we started doing racing, which is kind of on the sharper end. Um, but that was quite fun. I, I assumed it would only be national land racing. I didn't think you'd be doing five furlong, you know, sprints on the flat. But actually, people started doing everything. I mean, you know, who would who would bet in running on a, in a in a sprint? I don't know, but people do. Okay, then we'll talk about the in running a bit a bit more in a bit. But the, um, the betting ring, this is from my perspective again. Yep. Initially embraced Betfair because they realised that they could hedge some yep. much better terms than they could get from their fellow bookies, and, and they they took your umbrellas. With Betfair on. Did you have a bit of a wry smile thinking they're actually embracing something that's going to put them out of business? Did that, did that, did you think that was going to happen or was it, because it, in hindsight it was that? It's difficult. I mean, I mean, um, you know, I'm a, I'm an old-fashioned punter. I don't want to damage the bookies. But, you know, we're out to make a business and, and, and if you want to make a business, everyone's your, your, your competitor, right? You want to own everything if you can. So, um, um, you know, I didn't want to be against the bookies at all, but, um, you know, we're all, we are all competing in reality. Um, you know, I didn't want to harm them, but, but, you know, we want to succeed ourselves. So, so you know, that's, just, that's just the nature of competition. Um, I think they understood what was going on. I mean, they could see, everyone could see what's happening, I think, just as well as we could. Um, you know, I think that... Um, some of the bigger bookmakers, you know, they were really uncomfortable because they were looking at our growth. I mean, what we had at the time in, in the early version of the site, there was a number on the front page which showed how much money had been traded on Betfair in the past week. And it started off, you know, really quite small. It just used to say, you know, in the last week, 32,000 pounds had been traded on Betfair. And then, you know, a week later it was saying 50,000 pounds and it was 100,000. It was almost doubling every week. And um, before you knew it, it was like two million, you know, three million is traded on Betfair. And then we just took it down because it was attracting too much attention. But in, the, in that period of time, it did, it did make people realize this was something that was happening. But, but you, one thing that you did, and the, the racehorse bookmakers enabled, you didn't do it, you know, intentionally, but what the racehorse bookmakers enabled was take away the... Um, the chance of the big bookmakers to reduce their liabilities by shortening a horse up on course. Because I remember yeah. the reps running around having bets with bookmakers that wouldn't normally yeah, take yeah, a small yeah, bet. Yeah, yeah. So they, and they were laying yeah, them and then chasing them around the ring, asking if they wanted it again so they yeah, could yeah. earn off the, 
And I mean, and that was incredibly short-sighted by the racehorse bookmakers, which seems quite surprising when they've made their living yep. betting on what's going to happen. They didn't see that that was going to be the, the end of the trade money and then the beginning of the end of the betting ring as we knew it, really. I mean, did, well, you, did you watch all this and think, this is interesting? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's more. There's, there's, I think Betfair sort of... I think, you, you know, you, you get kind of the insider money in, in horse racing. You know, you know, a certain horse will be hot and somebody will know it. And initially, well, a lot of those horses were being backed on Betfair. So you, you would get, you would get this, the type of thing where a horse is being backed heavily on Betfair and everyone can see it. And the punters on the course can see it and they're running around placing bets with the bookmaker. And there's more of them because they're all watching it at the same time. So the bookmakers getting picked off, they're getting cherry picked by people who are literally just watching the Betfair market and they're more than that. So they're seeing the price movers on the Betfair market and they're essentially um, cashing in, you know, from the course bookmakers on those. That, and that potentially was damaging because, you know, there's another person there that's making money out of, you know, the sort of, I guess, the insider moves. You also get it the other way around. When somebody pushes the price out on Betfair, you know, deliberately and then has a coup, you know, a course coup with the bookmakers there. So, you know, they'll push a, push a horse out from sort of, you know, six to one to 20 to one and then they'll back it back in with the course bookmakers. And all, all, in all those situations, the course bookie is losing out so so i mean the, yeah, it's just 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 it's just an evolution it's just change people have to get used to it but you know? another thing i remember from sort of my early days in the 90s would be there would be a few chaps hanging around the hanging around the rails who would offer to lay a bet illegally you know, not licensed from a rails bookmaker um and if they got caught they were escorted off the track yeah you, were you surprised that you were allowed to basically allow anybody to do exactly the same thing via your platform to be an unlicensed layer mm. um, I think I mean certainly there were, there were people who didn't like the fact that we were allowing people to lay to lay bets of course because they felt it was their right to lay those bets because they were licensed and we were not the reality is to get betting permit is pretty easy so so it's not like there's a there's a big sort of you know high hurdle to get one I mean I got one myself you know you just turn up at court ask answer a couple of questions and then sign on, sign on the dotted line you know it's not as if there's you know someone comes in and, and, and you know interviews your family or something like that it's a pretty simple thing to get um, um, and essentially we were breaking down barriers um, and I don't mind breaking those barriers down. I mean, in order to make that progress, in order to make that happen, um, you know, those were the, the steps we had to take. Bookmakers felt that their, you know, they, they had a certain ownership and that was being eroded and taken away from them. And, and you know, and, and yes, you know, it was, it did, you know, we did do that. Um, you know, it's what we had to do to, to get our business going, we, you know. Um, it was a change. It was a change to the landscape, and um, um, you know they didn't like it, and you know reasonably so, to be honest. But um, you know, I guess I always felt that we would have support from the government, from the regulator on this, because I think the real reason I felt it was because Betfair was a good piece of work. You know, it was it was a 
it was a smart, well thought through, nice piece of work. It was it was reasonable and fair and intelligently put together. It, it, it covered off most of the concerns that anyone would have around people not paying up for their bets because we managed the transaction, so you always got paid. And most of the issues around having a betting permit was would you pay? Would would you be able to pay your customer? So 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 that was th those were the principal questions that were being asked when you applied for a license. And I, I always thought we would have the support of um, you know the government in the sense that you know they want to support new technologies and they want to support the internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is which you know ultimately proved that we did. So and but the other the other um, the other thing that people would say is that it enabled dishonest people in insiders in the racing game to profit from horses not trying that you, sort you of could thing. you could argue that you could you could you could argue the opposite um, um, I mean there's always been a little bit of that going on in horse racing you know there's individual stories I could think of through the years people doing certain things um, I guess that existed before Betfair came along those things happened before Betfair came along those people profited before Betfair came along, either by backing the second favourite or by collaborating with a bookmaker in order to make your money that way. So, so did more of that happen after Betfair came in? Um, I've no idea, but I don't. But I think what we did bring. So, in order to allow people to place lay bets, we had to introduce a certain transparency into the operation. So we had to say, yes, you can do this, you can do that, but we're going to share this information with the regulator. So if there's a pattern, if you are consistently laying horses and those horses are consistently being found to be being stopped in some way or another, then you know we can go after you because we've got all that data and we will share it with the regulator. So, so we introduced transparency into it, and that transparency didn't exist before. So, you know, we think of people like, you know, someone like Dermot Brown, for example, you know, we go, go back through various scandals over the years. Um, the BHA or what the BHB as it as was they weren't getting an awful lot of information from the bookmakers because it was, it was a bit of a kind of like you know everyone was keeping silent on these things and we were, we were being more transparent well we were being completely transparent so so you know look at it either way uh, now initially big players and big winners sort of courted by Betfair with account managers and trips to yep. the races and uh, you know, that sort of thing. When did it become apparent that these big fish were sort of sucking the liquidity out of the markets? I don't think they were particularly suck. I mean, m my view is always that you you just take them, take that business like any other. Um, so I didn't feel they were sucking liquidity out of the market. I didn't feel it, it was. A huge problem. Um, I think we, we might be talking about the Premier. Yeah, leading Premier on to that. Yeah, I don't even know if you were actually involved with that or not. So, well, well, it wasn't. It wasn't my decision, and it, um, but I guess we. It became apparent to us that there were some people who were making a lot of money out of Betfair, and um, they were. You know, they were mostly working pretty hard to make that money but um, they were making a lot of money and we thought a dispropor disproportionate amount of money um, so we'd look at the commission we were taking and the money that they were making and they were making far more money you know 
you know, way, way, way more money than, than we were making commission. But they, they were doing it because they, they were, you know, good players. But I think, I think um, you know, the board level were like, you know, well, we've got to try and even this up a little bit. You know, these guys are making a huge amount of money out of us and we're charging them very little, so we're going to charge them more. And um, um, that wasn't a decision I took. That was a decision the company took when I was on the board and I voted against it. But I don't, I don't speak against it. I mean, you know, it's a decision that the company took fairly and reasonably. You know, that they would charge, you know, we would, we would levy a charge for the professional players, you know, making, making more than a certain amount of money just to, um, you know, I guess, I guess, even out the balance. Um, but, um, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't necessarily have done it. But if I had have done it, I would have probably done it differently. So I didn't agree with the company on that. But I'm not going to speak against them on that because, because they took that decision fairly and, and it was a reasonable decision to take. Um, carrying on with the, the premium charge, I mean, some of I've been speaking to a few people that still, you know, that still pay it and use Betfair and still make money. And one of them said to me that when the premium charge was introduced, there were people using fast pitches, people courtsiding, that sort of thing. We couldn't really lose. But did you sort of unfairly scoop into that net those that were winning purely for their knowledge and skill and not an, an advantage? I don't see how we can, I mean, perhaps we could have done it differently. And as I say, I would have done it differently anyway. Um, I think they were just looking at anybody making money by whatever means. I mean, the courtsiders, that was kind of a different thing. Um, I think they mostly got closed down anyway, the courtsiders. I'm not sure that they even exist anymore. You've got to remember, I haven't been at the company for 11 years now. So um, recent events have sort of passed me by. So I'm not really sure what the situation is. And I, I don't speak for the company anymore either. So um, it's difficult for me to know how to comment on that right now. So I, I'll probably pass if that's all right. Okay, is it, is it true, this is another sort of rumor mill thing, that Betfair wanted to keep our UK free to air, the boost in running um, turnover, but were blocked by the BHA? Honestly, I wouldn't know the answer to that. Okay, so is would the would the premium charge? I know you're not involved now. Would the the premium charge have been brought in because if it continued without it, the business couldn't run profitably anymore, or was it brought in to enhance profits? I'd say to enhance profits, um, but I mean, I mean, I guess. You are looking to run any business. You look to run it optimally. So they would have looked at it and said, you know, if we charge more to these guys, they're still doing fine. They're still doing very, very well. Um, so, you know, I mean, they just tweaked it. It was a tweak to the charges. We had previously tweaked them down quite a few times. I mean, you know, you put charges up, you put charges down. They they put charges up in order to make more money. Um, because, because you know, for whatever reason, they've done their maths and they think they think that that that, that works for them. Again, I'm, I'm struggling to answer that. As I say, I've been out of the company for so long, so I just I just don't know what you know where they are on some of these things. Okay, now there's um, 
the horse racing liquidity seems to be going down, but people say it is anyway. But it's still very, very strong in cricket and football. Um, have you got the edge over traditional bookmakers being able to draw in money from all around the world, whereas they're not able to? Because they have to have, they have, to have um, jurisdiction, each jurisdiction licensed and that sort of thing. It's an interesting question because I, I haven't, again, I haven't followed, I don't know how much the liquidity is changing because, because I, don't, I don't track these things anymore. Um, I only really bet on horse racing myself. Um, you know, I still bet a fair amount. Um, maybe not as much as I used to. I'm busier now on, on other things. Um, I think that one thing that's affecting the UK market is the sort of affordability type stuff. Um, so I think people are, you know, I think that's definitely hit numbers and other countries haven't got that, those affordability type things going on. Um, does it get, yeah, I mean, sure, those, those, those are international markets and they do, they do get some international business, of course. Um, and so they're going to be healthy. Um, and they're not going to be subject to, you know, anything that's UK related. But I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. Do you think that maybe the horse racing market has a number of people that have always won and will always win? And eventually the sort of the amateur layers and players sort of lose confidence that they can actually win? No, I, I, well, maybe that's the case. Um, I mean... I, I don't particularly, I mean, I, I bet in horse racing and, you know, I haven't had a great year, to be honest. I've had a pretty bad year, but in recent years, you know, I have good and bad, good and bad runs. But I sort of feel that when I'm really focused on it, um, if I'm on my game, I'll make money in horse racing year in, year out without any information from anybody, without anything extra, just simply because I'm focused and I'm on, and I'm on it. Um, so I think anyone can make can make can make money if they if they if they um, spend the hours doing the proper analysis. Okay, is there no way that the winners can continue, can continue to win while sustaining your original dream, where winners are welcome without without that charge? No, I think winners winners can probably win forever. Why shouldn't they? I mean, I mean, if you imagine it's just like some great game of poker with somebody taking table money. You know, you're still going to get winners and losers. Um, most people, most people lose. We know that. Um, um, you know, if the winners are good, they should they should always continue to win. In my mind. Okay. Now, over the years, sort of, this is the final question on this. Um, Betfair has veered away from its original concept. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Um, and there's been talk at times that you and other founders might step in or even start a new exchange. Would that ever have happened? Not if it, I don't think I would. Um, I'm, I'm still interested in gambling. and I'm interested in the internet. I'm not going to go back and do another Betfair. That, that would be strange to me. That would be kind of a betrayal of my original shareholders to take that IP and try and recreate it. You know, I might do other things that are similar in the internet market, but I'm, I, I would never I don't think I would ever try and take Betfair on because, because um, you know, I've, I've been there, done that, really. Okay, now talking current 
and I hope you, hope you won't mind me saying that on our journey here today, I had the privilege of hearing you buy a horse over the telephone. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about your current interests in racing? And well, I'm I'm a breeder. You know, we're sitting on my stud farm, surrounded by fields and a hundred horses out there. I enjoy that. I do a lot of analysis on that. So I, you know, I've got probably at least a hundred spreadsheets where I'm analysing. Um, um, I guess pedigrees, you know, to inform my racehorse matings, my purchases, buying and selling horses, so on and so forth. I'm pretty busy in all of that. There's a lot of work that goes into that and I enjoy it. And then you hold on to a few and you race them and you go and support them on the course and so on and so forth. So, so I'm very heavily involved in racing and um, yeah, it's a huge part of my life. and I enjoy that enormously. And you're also um, keen to help, you sort of like to support other startup businesses sort of financially? I am, and I do support startups, but I'm probably, so my, my, my biggest investments at the moment, or my most valuable shareholdings are not in technology companies. I, I own a, 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 an oil re-refining company called Slicker, um, and uh, half of a re-refinery in Denmark. Um, so, so, so that's kind of an oil type business. And I own a big share of a, a biotech business that makes um, um, DNA vaccines. So I've branched out in some rather different areas now. So although I'm, I still have involvement, you know, or shareholdings and so on and so forth in some sort of small startup-y businesses, for the most part, my business life is outside of the internet now. And is, is I mean, you know, I assume that you don't need to do any of any of these things. Obviously, the horses are um, pleasure. Is is it just to keep to keep you involved and to keep you just living a life? You know, I mean, um, when I was young, I always felt that um, um, you know I was about a week away from being broke at any time. I never had that much money, and then the more money I've got, I still feel I'm a week away from being broke because I'm just betting much bigger. And I've always said to my wife, never, ever, ever depend on me not to go bust because I'm capable of going through any amount of money. Um, um, I think that since leaving Betfair, you know, I've taken, you know, I've carried on behaving in a fairly reckless fashion. And if things had gone against me and I, I you know, had some bad luck at the wrong times, I could easily have crashed and burnt um, because I'm, you know, I like to participate. Don't ask me why I should probably go and live on a desert island and just just do absolutely nothing um, for the rest of my life drinking, you know, cocktails in a hammock. But I'm just not inclined to do that. So, um, um, you know, I'll carry on. I'll carry on churning my money, um, um, you know, playing, you know, a game as big as I can play it, probably until the day I die. So the the young man that um, launched that fair, if he could have seen what it's become. I don't know, you make me, make me feel emotional when you say that. I don't, I don't, uh, it's, it's difficult to think of, you know, the person I was then and, and the person I am now. Um, you know, I guess I daydreamed that Betfair might become some massive, you know, success and it probably was the success that I daydreamed it would become. Um, you know, I don't know, you know, I tend not to look forward or look back and just focus on the present. Um, I think, you know, my life to this point, you know, there's been ups and downs, but um, I'm pretty happy with the way things have been and the way things are. 
and uh, you know, I just hope it can carry on a bit longer. Brilliant. Well, Andrew Black, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure.